my advice would be study, 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 study your guts out. You're learning the language by which we communicate because AI has really blown up. Things I sort of never thought would have been possible are now possible. If you are a creative in the entertainment industry looking for inspiration and practical ideas about how to take the next steps in your career, you are in the right place. My name is Rebecca Doyle and I work in film and television in Los Angeles. I learned so much from the ups and downs of the talented, innovative people surrounding me and I want to share those insights with you. Join in every other week to hear the break-in stories of people who overcame challenges and found unconventional avenues to pursue their dream careers in an industry that has no set path. Today, we are getting into artificial intelligence, AI. This has been a hot topic all year in no small part due to its part in the ongoing SAG strike and during its place in the WGA strike that recently came to an end. But it's also on a lot of people's minds as we wonder how much of our workload can be taken on and perhaps taken away by a robot. I first met today's guest at a lecture about AI eight years ago. He's loved sharing about this area of expertise for a long time, and he has some really well-founded insight to share today. Mark J. Matthews is an LA-based software engineer who performs AI research for a tech company. He spent 10 years at DreamWorks Animation, where his work in AI has given more fire to explosions, fluff to hair, and jiggles to bellies in films, including Kung Fu Panda, Shrek Forever After, Madagascar, and installments of the franchise's Troll and how to train your dragon. He has multiple patents and two DreamWorks Technical Achievement Awards. He developed volume rendering system Amorphous and was previously the lead developer of Rapid, DreamWorks' proprietary FLP fluid simulator. Originally from Canada, Mark is an alumnus of the University of Calgary and the University of Saskatchewan. Today we're getting into the realistic future of AI, how to protect yourself from it as a writer, actor, or filmmaker, what Mark did proactively step-by-step step to land a dream job at DreamWorks, even after DreamWorks rescinded a first job offer, and the one trait that every person who did land a job at DreamWorks had in common. Let's jump into the interview. Mark, you have so many talks that you're giving over the next few months about this. Thank you so much for making time to come on the podcast and talk about artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Anytime. I love talking about it. So... So let's start with what you are currently the most excited about. Ooh, wow. Okay. So I'm most excited about something called Nerf, which is not the Nerf gun, but neural radiance fields. And basically it is a technique for reconstructing a 3D model from 2D images. So if you were doing something like visual effects and you wanted to create a digital double of a set or an object, you could now just go take a bunch of pictures of it and sort of snap your fingers and boom, it turns into this magically visually perfect 3D model. And a project that I just worked on was something called LOL Nerf, L-O-L Nerf. And it's really good at uh, dealing with things like faces. So you can give it a 2D picture of a cat and it'll turn your 2D flat cat into a 3D cat. So for, as a simple explanation, but that's kind of what it can kind of do. So. Neural radiance fields, so hot right now. <laughs> when it comes to that technology, what has your role been in either researching it, testing it, getting the no before the general public does? Sure. So um, so I am a software engineer for a tech company and I do AI research. So we do fundamental research into the applications of this technology. And what I do right now, so I mean, so much has been happening in the field of AI um, it's impossible to keep up with all the research. It's like drinking from a fire hose. But there's kind of two main areas of AI. One is NLP, natural language processing, and the other one is computer vision, which is basically dealing with images. And so what I do, I get to leverage a lot of my background. I worked at DreamWorks Animation for many years doing visual effects research and development. So we were kind of the geeks that would program every little bit of how the math works in computer graphics. But then now there's this whole push in AI that you can kind of use a lot of those techniques to sort of understand things in the real world. So it's kind of like you sort of create digital doubles of everything to sort of understand what's going on. So there's some yeah, just stuff that feels sort of totally science fiction to me that I kind of thought we'd never be able to do. We can kind of do now. It's like you just take a picture of your coffee cup and snap your fingers and boom, it turns into a 3D coffee cup. And then 
the AI will know about it and it will read the text on, you know, the coffee cup and all sorts of cool things. So mm. so I imagine this is useful in live action for previs or I mean, even if it's getting very photorealistic, even in the actual cut, but in animation specifically, you can see that having a real utility. Mm-hmm. How would this technology have changed some of the projects that you worked on in your time at DreamWorks? Or has the technology been developed from some of the things that were already just, you know, the seeds of what the technology is now during some of those movies? Mm. Yeah, that, so that's a great question. And I love thinking a kind of I, I love thinking I'm like, OK, if I were back at DreamWorks, how would we use this technology now? What could we actually do with it? I'm I'm a little bit more consumer facing now. So I kind of think of, you know, for the consumer who's creating digital media on their phone, you know, TikTokers and all that kind of stuff, like how how are they using it? And then how would we have used it potentially at DreamWorks is a little bit further removed from my thought. But I can say, like, in general, media creation is moving I don't know, it's almost something that's completely automated. So, I mean, are you familiar with text to image generation systems? Is that kind of like mid journey? Exactly. Yeah. Like mid journey, you can type in a prompt and you will snap your fingers and you get an image of it. And so like when you are doing visual development for a project, so like at DreamWorks, that would be a perfect application of it that you don't have to employ a visual development artist anymore, you know, to do that. Now, you kind of still have to because the text to image generator you cannot precisely control it's kind of very random sometimes in what it comes up with so if you really want to start refining things and controlling things you still really need an artist to do those things but it's really kind of exciting to think about like well how how will the artists start to use this technology and use that in their creative process i foresee a world in the future when it will literally be you type in a script and you snap your fingers and poof it will give you a very bad version of that film <laughs> but it'll still be a version that will kind of look kind of you know cruddy and crappy and whatnot but it'll be enough to entertain people and people will forward it and watch it and do all sorts of other crazy stuff with it so mm. do you think that the technology has the capability to get so advanced that you're going to be able to cut a human out entirely whether in script writing or in vfx no, no. And yes, I think I think it will be the kind of thing where you could a lot of things you could take a human out of the process and that might work for a percentage of applications, but you will never get the same quality as if you actually had a human in the process refining things. And so it's kind of like, yeah, you're kind of what you're getting out of AI is like a little random. You kind of quite don't quite know what it's going to do with it. A key thing with all the current AI systems is they're all data driven. So Mm -hmm. something like Midjourney, it had to learn from all the pieces of concept art that any other artist has done before, but it cannot come up with something that is truly original. Only only a human can do that to draw on something from their own personal experience so if you if you kind of want to keep pushing the envelope you're still going to need humans in there so Mm. are there other advances that have been made with technology especially maybe technology that use at dreamworks that at first glance people feared for taking away their jobs potentially are there certain you know things that technology was able to provide you in your research or artists at dreamworks that Initially, people thought we're going to replace them and instead turn into an asset. Or have we not really seen a development of this caliber with what's coming out in AI? Great question. So I think maybe I would lead with saying any technology that has been developed, even with the invention of steam power in the past, there were people who harvested by hand and they're like, what are they going to do? Like, you're taking away the soul of our work, you know, and it's, you know, we can kind of laugh at that now and go, well, yeah, you know, everything's diesel powered. But there still is kind of a movement of people who are like really earthy and actually would want to harvest things by hand. So it's kind of like they sort of did have a point, you know, that you do lose something a little bit whenever you place replace what a human was doing with the technology. So I think, yeah, to cut you to your question of like things at DreamWorks, I wasn't quite there for it, but I know I think there was a little bit of hesitancy when they made the like digital art transition to using Cintiqs. So Cintiqs being basically a combination screen and tablet that you can kind of draw on now like an iPad. And it was kind of like 
oh, that's sort of cheating a little bit, you know, like you need to know how to do it on paper and pencil if you really want to be a real artist, you know, you'll never get as good. And and I think, you know, there's a, a, a value to training like that for sure. But, you know, you kind of end up using these tools to accelerate, you know, and it's you'll, you'll always end up using the tools to accelerate and try to make even better art. I forget the stat, but if you look at like the average frame in computer graphics and how long it takes the computer to generate it, it's been three hours for like the last 30 years, like since the 1980s kind of a thing. You go, well, computers have been getting faster. Like, couldn't they, shouldn't it only take like two minutes now to render a frame? And it's like, well, no, as computers got more powerful, they just started putting more detail into all these frames and images. So it's kind of like, so, it's sort of a question of just like, yeah, how much effort they want to put into it. Maybe one other practical example is like, I think the layout department, I forget the name of the project, but someone developed, there was a project to develop better software for laying out all the scenes, which traditionally had been like a very time consuming task. And I think in the end, they did end up laying off a number of artists from Mm. that. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, there are real job losses from these things too. So, you know, I get that. But it's kind of like, you know, the world changes, you know, we can't all keep harvesting grain by hand. So, yeah, definitely. Well, it's it's just interesting because I think there are some examples in history as well where, you know, the invention of a new camera or the switch to digital mm. initially caused some fear and job loss. But overall, mm-hmm. the amount of people employed in some of those professions has grown. Yeah. So I was just curious if any of that applied to AI, you know, if maybe it's going to expedite the process and create more jobs overall, if you really think the creative part is going to see a net negative in the workforce. Oh, man, that's a tough question. I so I I think in terms of like the impact of the technology, I do think it will be as big as, say, the Internet. Wow. Yeah. And and so it really is can be potentially that transformative. And and I mean, I guess I, I think that there's two things. It's like if things if we kept doing things the way we used to, you, you look at the Internet, it's like, well, yeah, of course, that replaced jobs, you know, like they don't need people you know, doing punch cards anymore. But we just found other new newer jobs for them. And so I think, yeah, it's going to shift things around a lot with A.I. It's kind of like, oh, hey, great. A.I. can you know, write this script idea for me or whatever. But then, oh, now we have a whole new discipline of prompt engineering. How do you coax the AI into doing what you need it to do? So I'm not expecting I don't I'm not expecting throngs of jobless people out on the streets. (laughs) And I don't think change is going to be that fast. But I certainly think, yeah, it will end up replacing jobs, I think, for sure. So do you think that there's going to be any sort of discrepancy in the types of projects that are using this AI. I mean, for example, obviously our smartphones have incredible video capabilities. You and I were just talking about this before we started recording, but it's not that the studios are necessarily looking to shoot their next feature on the iPhone 13 Pro Max, you know, (laughs) instead the effect has been that there have been so many people creating other types of content for maybe UGC platforms or, you know, user-based platforms. Do you think that there's going to be any discrepancy in how some of these tools are used or who is using them? Yeah. You know what? Yes, I think for sure. Like kind of like to what I was just saying, like I can see the tools being used by users more than potentially studios Mm. who might have been used to doing things by hand. Even like there was a a beautification filter that I just saw on TikTok. It makes everybody look like a celebrity. There's more than one, Mark. Yeah, yeah, there's more than one. And and I mean, they're they're absolutely stunning and super impressive. But then it's kind of like, well, why could they not have like a I want a realistic looking explosion in the background, make that chair in my room blow up. So I think you literally will see I think I think AI technologies will excel at repackaging and repackaging what we've typically seen on the silver screen with Hollywood movies and democratizing those kinds of effects so that anyone can use them at home on Mm. their cell phone. And then what that will kind of push the studios to do is they will need to find ways to distinguish themselves and to move beyond that. And how exactly they do that, you know, I kind of I don't quite know. I'd say AI I might describe AI techniques right now as like the ultimate imitator. It's very, very good. You feed it a lot of data, a lot of examples at something, and you just say, give me, recreate lots of that. It can do that very, very well. So, so you know, you just feed it all the movies that have ever been made kind of a thing and say, yeah, I want visual effects like that. Oh, make it look like Blade Runner 2049. You know, that that will be kind of fun to see what people will do with those things. So... Yeah, it'll democratize visual effects, maybe. So what would be your advice to someone who is currently 
afraid of this new wave of AI. Is that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So what underpins a lot of these fears about AI is actually something called the singularity. And the singularity was this idea put forth by a mathematician, William Gooding, in, I think, 1965. He said, what if an AI could create another AI that was, say, 5% smarter than it. Well, that AI would go on to make another AI that was 5% smarter than that one. And then you'd get this exponential explosion and it's gonna pose this existential threat to the world and subjugate us all to a life of <laughs> slavery and we'll be shoveling robot poop for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and I think that makes for a great sci-fi movie. I love a good singularity-based post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie, but it's also a very ridiculous idea if you start to dissect it. Um, um, and there's lots of good arguments against it. You know, you could even say the same thing about like uh, machines, like, well, I make a machine that lets you lift something bigger. Well, then that machine lets you lift something that's bigger than that one. And then that just goes on to infinity and you make a machine that could move the world. And it's kind of like, well, no, that hasn't happened. Every technology plateaus at some point. You know, it's just it's just not realistic. So so that unfortunately has kind of infected a lot of people's thinking about AI, like, oh, it's going to lead to massive job losses or something like that. And like any techno, like even when electricity came out, like, oh, it's going to kill people. There's no way you could have it in the walls of your home, you know. Oh, wow. So every every new technology has always had kind of fears about it when it's come out. And nobody has ever predicted sort of the real things that they should have been afraid of about that technology. So it's just a natural cycle, I think, as far as I see. Like, yeah, people are going to be afraid of it. But then as it gains more common usage, people will see what it can kind of do and what it can't do. Yeah, that would kind of be my response to like AI fears or fears about what AI could how if people yeah, are afraid of it. Mm, OK, so speaking of AI being kind of just an imitator of things. OK, let's talk about your patents. Oh, ooh, my patents. Patents. <laughs> what what would you like to know about my patents? All right. What, what are they for? Because it's it's within the realm of of the technology that we're discussing, right? Yes. So and yeah, even there sure. you have a human authorship over certain elements. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so yeah. So the patents I have, I have one for data compression of hair that I got while I was at uh, DreamWorks. And then I don't know, a lot of tech companies, like whenever you publish a paper, if they have a team of lawyers, you just say, oh, here's the paper, turn this into a patent. And they quite often can do that as well, too. So but in terms of like, do academics or technologists sort of really care about patents? Like, eh, not so much. Mm. You know, they, if anything, they're kind of an impediment because then it's like, ooh, that's patent. We don't want to use Use that technique potentially interesting so but anyway yeah there's there's patent trolls but, but there's ways around this you know some tech companies have made a consortium to make sure that they're sort of always in the public domain so um but yeah but i have a few patents so yeah the other one is about lol nerf that i mentioned as well too so mm. yeah so well if having a patent would scare someone off from using something wouldn't that actually be to the benefit of people who are concerned about AI training on their materials or using their materials? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's kind of a weird thing. Like, yeah, it, so it's kind of like the the lawyers are the ones who care about the patents most of all at companies, but it's kind of almost like patents are purely defensive. They'll patent everything, but within tech, it's just like, oh, we're going to do whatever, we'll use whatever. There's not a lot of concern about like if you're if you're actually a company that's sort of relying on your patents like to kind of like defend you and get your niche like you're kind of playing a dirty game already so you know you won't be playing well with other other tech companies so so yeah but so it's kind of more about the the papers the academic papers are kind of really where people want to get their work out and you actually want this to be as accessible as possible quite often they'll publish the source code um mm. and then people can use it and then they'll cite you lots and you gain notoriety that way interesting so, yeah. okay yeah so it's really more about the academic papers and then yeah like any of the kind of like you know any bigger tech company like yeah if you publish a paper they'll they'll uh get a patent for it but then usually they're in a patent consortium which then people kind of know oh we can use that patent kind of a thing mm. without troubles or we can use that technique so mm. so let's talk about some of the ai that you were using in different films at dreamworks and 
you know, I am definitely not an AI expert, so you can speak to the general public here. You sure, know, the average sure, peasant sure. who does not the have the expertise. peasant who doesn't know about exactly. AI kind yeah. of a thing. So. so walk me through what that looked like on a, on a film like Trolls or on Kung Fu Panda where you did use one of those patents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good question. Um, so like you know so it's it's interesting too um so i don't think we actually so the one that we have for hair data compression was actually more of a theoretical application i don't think we actually ever needed it or used it at any point it was just kind of an idea i came up in the process while i was working on hair as you can imagine you know people characters have a lot of hair you know like hundreds of thousands of hairs if you store all that data on disk like you've got to store the location of every hair for every frame for every character like oh that adds up to like you know petabytes of data and so my gears were kind of thinking like oh you know hey this could be an actual data compression technique so those you know, petabytes might only be gigabytes of data kind of a thing. But in the end, that data only needed to exist for a very temporary period of time. They could generate it and then delete it right away. Mm. So so the practical application of it sort of was it wasn't necessarily as useful as, say, I might have hoped. But but that's also kind of the way I think things go in technology quite often is you just come up with an idea just for the idea's sake and you don't necessarily know how useful it's going to be and i think sometimes i think more often you think something's going to be useful and it doesn't end up really being used and the thing that you didn't think would really have that much impact at all is like oh hugely useful has that been the case for anything in your work um you know actually so the one of the other systems that i worked on so it was a system called amorphous and i got a i yeah so i there was kind of like one feature in there it basically what it lets you do is it lets you get a very good approximation of what say a fire or cloud was going to look like kind of in real time before you'd press the button and you'd wait the three hours until that image would get generated Mm. and i think i even remember kind of like asking my manager like oh should i put the time in to put this extra feature in there and he's like nah you don't really need to worry about that and in the back of my head i'm like no 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 this this i think would actually be useful so i went ahead and i did it anyway and everyone ended up loving it the artists that you know you could basically match you could match very closely what you saw in a real-time preview with what the final image was actually going to look like and so yeah i ended up getting a technical achievement award for that you know while i was at dreamworks so so very cool yeah so you know it's kind of one of those things and it like honestly like invention i mean you probably experienced this as like a creator sometimes if you have an artistic vision it's very difficult to put into words and sort of really explain what it's going to look like or what it's going to kind of do for people in the end and i think sometimes it's like that with a lot of technologists you know and we're geeks you know we're not really good at using words and expressing ourselves so sometimes you just kind of have to do it and just make the thing and then people kind of judge it from there or it doesn't become you don't actually explain it until you've actually created the prototype for something and do you mean kind of concept art or previs or an actual iteration of a project i think so i'm thinking so for myself i'm thinking of like say a prototype version of software that you would you would usually show a demo and then it's quite often it's not until people see that demo that they sort of really understand kind of maybe the value of what you were proposing would be um and then yeah for movie making maybe it's like it's not until you make an animatic yeah or a previs or something that you can kind of really see or get a feel for yeah kind of what the concept is so very cool so i think the first time that we met around eight ish years ago you were okay. giving wow a i can't talk believe about... it's been that long <laughs> i know so, it crazy. feels long and short at the same time the covid was a time warp so oh, those are two years don't count everyone yep. has two years off off yeah yeah but the first time i heard you speak about ai i remember specifically you were advising people that it was not going to take over the world <laughs> it's not it still isn't but i have a secret password that if you tell it to the robots when they take take everyone over they'll make sure you get a cushy slave <laughs> job so <laughs> So I'll tell you the What's secret the password? password. I'll tell you after when we turn off the recording. Okay. Okay. But the verdict is still that it's not going to be taking over anything. Maybe. Probably not. You know. No, it's not. It's totally not going to take <laughs> over the world. I can assure you of that. <laughs> okay. So now that we've talked a little bit about some of your recent research, the developments, the patents you've gotten along the way, I'd love to talk more about the path that got you there. Mm, so sure. could you tell me a little bit about landing your first job in 
technology or entertainment was the first job in entertainment tech when did those two converge all of the above sure good question so how i got interested in computer graphics is i like to joke that my parents let me watch disney's 1982 tron too many times (laughs) as a kid and it permanently warped my brain but it was one of the first movies to sort of really use computer graphics and somehow as a kid i just thought oh that's really cool and so i was always fascinated by computer graphics fast forward many years later i ended up doing my master's in computer science, in particular in computer graphics. And I kind of looked around and I wanted a job where I could do interesting work, but also that it wouldn't consume my life. Because a lot of what I'd heard about visual effects and about a lot of tech jobs is like, oh, the hours, the hours, the hours. They want you to work crazy hours. And so you kind of ask around, you do some research and DreamWorks came up as like, oh, this is a company that treats their employees well and you actually get to do some interesting kind of like research computer work. So so I did my master's in computer graphics, which is kind of the prerequisite sort of of what they're looking for. They typically want a graduate degree in computer graphics. Uh, but I think, yeah, I didn't immediately go work for them. There was a girl I was interested in in another town. So I worked for like, you know, an oil company doing some technology stuff for them. Wow. But eventually you know, it's interesting. So with DreamWorks, I mean, and sure, I'm sure there's a lesson in here. So the story goes that I interviewed with them. They offered me a position and then they rescinded the position, which is very bad form as far as any kind of business goes. And I don't know what all the internal workings that were going on there were, but I managed to reverse engineer what one of the managers email was from who interviewed me and it would occasionally just drop him a line just saying hey you know if you ever open a position up again you know please let me know i'm still interested and i think i talked to him afterwards you know years later and he said you know that was actually pretty important and i think the assumption would have been for every other person would have been like oh they would have moved on to another job you know because they wouldn't be willing to wait around, you know, say another, you know, two, three, four, five, six months until a position opens up again, you know, because most people have mortgages and they need to get paid or whatnot. So he said, yeah, me keeping in touch and just dropping him a line occasionally saying, hey, if, if a, you know, the position open up, please let me know. And eventually it did. And then they just gave me the position. I didn't need to interview for it because I had already interviewed. So, OK, wait, this is this is a really fascinating part of the story because you also weren't discouraged by the fact they had rescinded this offer. Was there any sort of internal dialogue about why that was or if you should even try with this company? I think at the time I knew they it was made clear that it wasn't because of my performance. It was because, mm. you know, the allocation for it had disappeared. Mm. And, and I think there's a lesson here, too. And that is, I think a lot of times when we hire or when we're looking for a job, we're just like, oh, they're only looking for talent. As long as I'm talented, I will get the job. And that's the only criteria that they hire based on. The truth is, is it's more of like, oh, we have this vacancy. We just need someone to fill it. And we sort of almost in some ways, sometimes they don't care who fills it. They just want someone who just kind of meets the bare minimum technical requirements. So I guess I understood that. I understood like, oh, they had a position and their priorities changed, budgets changed. Mm. You know, with filmmaking, things are very dynamic. They move quite a bit. And so I understood that. I'm like, oh, okay, just, yeah, their budgets change with this particular position. So... And, and I guess, yeah, also then me keeping in touch with them was also sort of an awareness of like, oh, yeah, when a position opens up, you know, I can work with them, you know, to find that particular position. So, mm, OK, so there's two pieces here. The first is when you say you reverse engineered the email. I assume that you just kind of looked at everyone who had emailed you from DreamWorks and thought, oh, OK, first initial, last name. That's yeah, probably exactly. They okay. had a pattern. So. OK, great. So that's how you're able to get a hold of the manager. And you then- know what? And I, I want to say, too, like I think I even remembered only his first name. So then I had to look at the credits for some of the films, figure out who he was, who what his last name was from there. And then from like all the emails, I could kind of reverse engineer what his email probably was. This is amazing. I love the initiative. And how did you <laughs> how did you know that he was going to be the person you should contact instead of, I'm assuming, you know, the recruiter or someone else from DreamWorks? You know what? That's a good question. I that that was a little bit of the luck of the draw because it was three managers in this one interview. And It turned out I couldn't remember sort of like who was high, who was the biggest cheese of all of them kind of a thing. And turned out I just kind of like lucked out and got the guy who was the right guy to 
to get. Yeah, it's really funny when you think about this and you look back, you're just like, oh, yeah, that was perhaps serendipity. And that changed the course of my life, you know, and here I am so many years later, you know, DreamWorks is what brought me to L.A. and filmmaking. So it's so funny how different our perspectives are, because you think it's serendipity and I'm thinking, oh, this was very calculated initiative. You know what I mean? Oh, I see. Very proactive strategy. Yeah. Yeah. But, But there was still a bit of luck in terms of like that was his email address and I lucked out that that was the name of he was actually the guy who was the most important to yeah, email and I, keep I mean, in touch with. So, but classic, you're right. There's yeah. both, both ends. It's the, this is, it's the classic luck is where opportunity meets preparation, right? Like, yes. Yes. Good deal preparation. And then when you were following up with him, what kind of things would you say? Was it the same email every time or how did you find reasons to keep loop, looping back you know around? That's a great question. I, I should go back and see. I bet you I still have those emails somewhere. Um, <laughs> I think it was probably just like, hey, how's it going? Uh, you know, I'm just curious if you guys had any openings. Okay. You know, I'm still available. Kind so of a very thing. direct. Yeah, just kind of like, yeah, very direct. So, and I mean, they kind of knew they knew the situation. So mm. it was kind of understandable that like, yeah, I might have still reached out to them. So and, and I think even too, like any employer, like they kind of want to know, like, is this a person who really wants to work with us? And so even you're just kind of showing them or like, hey, I really want to work with you guys. You know, and you might think like, oh, it was DreamWorks. Well, wouldn't they know that everybody wanted to work with them kind of a thing? But it's like also like that. That's not always the case, you know, because once you kind of get into the industry in that department, you know, people move around and different companies have different reputations and whatnot. So, you know, it's not always a given that that person really wants to work with that company. Totally. So at what point were you moving from Canada to the U.S.? Because that it was my position with DreamWorks. So, yeah. And for that visa, you need a sponsorship from a company. Mm -hmm. And so they were willing to do that and go through that process. How many years is it after the visa sponsorship that you gain your citizenship? Good, good, great. Yeah, good question. I think I think we renewed. Basically, we renewed a visa, I think, for five years. And then I think we got my green card from there. And then basically, they kind of want to know that you're going to be around long enough that it's worth the effort and price for them to get your green card instead of just renewing the visa. And then you have to have your green card for at least five years before you can become a citizen. But but yeah, getting your green card is basically almost like being a citizen anyway, as far as sort of like U.S. customs and immigration is concerned. Mm. And then between going back and forth between Canada and the U.S., I mean, so many projects are filmed in Canada or have the mm. effects in Canada? Mm-hmm. Have you ever considered returning to Canada to work or have you always been happy in the US? Um, I have, I've certainly thought about going back to my home and native land. It's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's always the motherland. There's always a part of you that feels a little bit more at home there. There wasn't really actually, I'd say, I wouldn't say there wasn't a real option to go back until after COVID. Mm. So there were production jobs in Canada, but honestly, they weren't really as nearly as interesting as the ones that were down here in Los Angeles. So because the kind of stuff that I do is really sort of like leaning more towards the research, you really kind of have to be at the head offices for the for those kinds of jobs. Mm. So yeah, so it wasn't until COVID when a lot of tech companies started saying like, no, you actually can work from anywhere now. And it kind of was proven that it actually works. That's sort of like, oh, it's a, a real door, I say, potentially has opened up that, yeah, you could I can move back to Canada and keep doing the same kind of work. But you stay in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know. Here I still am. So that's the big question. So <laughs> I'm, I'm ambivalent at this point. I don't quite know. I'm trying to fi- I'm trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm glad you're here, Mark. I'm, I'm L.A. I'm, till I I'm die, glad so. to be here, too. The thing I always say about L.A. is the awesome people, so, <laughs> people such as yourself. <laughs> I don't know if you're being sarcastic or not. No, I mean it for real. No, there's awesome. I mean, it's the great it's the great thing about L.A. So it's funny. I think it's the blessing and the curse of L.A. People are. I I don't want to say extreme, but we're a little bit quirky and a little (laughs) bit different. And it is like those are the things that sometimes annoy you about life in L.A. But it's also like one of the joys you're just like wow rebecca she's just does such cool amazing work you know it's like she's a director and she works with all these content creators and <laughs> she's doing this podcast you know it's like you know you don't, you don't meet people meet people like that in other parts of the country or the world i so. mean thanks for your kind words mark yeah i definitely think you know there's a lot of opportunity here and a lot of creativity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. L- L.A. Hollywood is unparalleled just in terms of bringing all these creative people together in one place. Like, I don't think you can have that experience anywhere else in the world. Mm, so. I love that. OK, let let's get into even your earlier interests. Okay. Were you always interested in doing something with graphics? Did your brain always lean this way, even mm. in school? Or when did you first start realizing, oh, I think this is kind of where I would like my career to go when I, you know, grow up? Yeah, great. Good, 
Good question. Okay, so I was here, here, true confessions. I was a real geek growing up. <laughs> so my dad worked for the local phone company. He was a technician. He was an electronic hobbyist. And I learned all sorts of things about electronics from him. And if people had a VCR that was broken, they said, hey, why don't you give this to Mark? He can take it apart, you know, and so I take it apart. And, you know, and how I, old were you? Oh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years old kind of a thing. So and eventually, like, I learned how to, like, oh, put things together. But you learn so much even just by, yeah, taking apart electronics and stuff that might be garbage there's a lot to be learned there mm. and so yeah so i i was fascinated by that you know so as a result loved anything to do with like math electronics physics engineering all that kind of stuff so it was a very clear decision for me to go into engineering when i finished high school and i chose engineering physics which is sort of like this perfect cross between like physics and math and also engineering so i could kind of keep both doors open doing that and I kind of thought like, oh, I think maybe I want to become a theoretical physicist or an astrophysicist or something like that. And I always had this love for computer graphics, but I didn't really think it was like, this sounds really proud. I didn't think it was hard enough for me. I didn't think it was sort of like really challenge me to my fullest. Mm. And so it wasn't until I think my last year of engineering, I somehow stumbled upon real academic research papers for computer graphics and started kind of like diving into them and reading them. And I was like, oh, wow, there's actually some really interesting, challenging problems here. Like this would really interest me and use my brain to sound proud. It was it was a hard enough problem. It was a problem that was <laughs> deserving of my talents. <laughs> So, but, but yeah, anyway, so uh, I, um, you felt like it was intellectually stimulating. I felt like it was intellectually stimulating. You know? yeah. yeah. I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So yeah. And then, so I ended up doing my master's at the university of Calgary. Um, they had a really good computer graphics program there. And so then, yeah, the rest is history. Was there any other additional formal higher education or is it all at the um, University of so, Calgary? Okay, so I also, so I tell people I was um, a college dropout. So the undergrad I did was a dual degree program. So it was, I got a degree in engineering physics and in computer science. So, so kind of like keeping everything open. So like physics, engineering and computer science. Then I did my master's in computer graphics. And then I also got enrolled in a PhD program for a couple of years. But after two years of it, I honestly, I burnt out. It had been nine mm. years of post-secondary education and, and I was kind of burnt out. So I dropped out of my PhD program. I left on, you know, very good terms. It wasn't like in a yelling match with my advisor or anything like that. So um, so I always like to say, I'm like, you get a PhD quality for the price of a master's. Mm. So OK, I think this is also interesting because I imagine some people struggle with sunk cost fallacy in situations like that what kind of mm. things gave you peace about making the decision to leave oh good question um so some trusted confidants and mentors that i had talked to over the years and they were able just simply to reflect to me to say hey mark you know you've been talking about like leaving your PhD program for a long time, you know, for like the last year or two. And they're just like, yeah, you don't really seem happy, mm. you know, in what you're doing right now. You know, so that that was really helpful to have that kind of like reflected to me. And then also in terms of like when I made the decision, I was kind of like, oh, I felt a relief about it. Like I felt happy about it. And then also like even too, like the advisors, like they were supportive. They were like, hey, yeah, I totally understand. You know, people get burnt out all the time. They said, let's make sure we have a letter on file that says you left on good terms. So there's no question at all if you want to come back to this kind of a thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, let's do that. So that was all kind of helpful. Man, I mean, yeah, you hear so many kind of like horror stories about like grad students or PhD students sort of being stuck in grad student purgatory. Like, mm. you know, they're just like not getting anywhere. And so so it can be grad studies can be a really, really difficult time. So so it was nice to have the kind of sense of freedom about it. Like, hey, I can go back if I want to. But yeah, right now it really is the right choice for me to to leave and put this behind me. So mm. so can you tell me about some of the projects you were involved with oh. on DreamWorks and your contributions to those films? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so uh, the, the program Amorphous that I talked about, which was kind of working, helping with fire and clouds that got used a lot on how to train your dragon. So so that's kind of like a point of pride because it's a lot of people like that film. I like that film a lot. So, yes. So I'm quite proud of that. So the first one. The first and also I think the second one as well, too, I think. Actually, you know what? I, sorry. 
I think it might have only got used on the second one. Mm. It might not have even been the first one. I can't, I'd have to look back at the chronology, but it did get used on at least one, if not two of the movies in the How to Train Your Dragon series. Nice. I also worked on a hair system called Willow, and one of the first movies to use it on all the characters was the Trolls film. And so if you remember, they're like those trolls that have the big crazy hair. Oh, yeah. So hair is like really important in that film. So that's kind of cool. Like code that I wrote got used in, you know, all the hair in that film. Mm-hmm. So so that's kind of a really neat thing. What else? I also worked on um, our rigging. Oh, yeah, yeah. The other thing I was talking about. So I worked on a rigging system. And one of the things that I worked on is something called a balloon deformer system and they use that basically for fat bellies so like pose belly they use the balloon deformer system on gloria the hippo's belly in the uh, Madagascar they use that that there so so the joke is as I always say they they looked at me and they said Mark you have such good reference material in your belly if you can make it look like that uh you know that'd be great Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So then I cried, you know, and then I went and reported them to HR. <laughs> and then after I did all that, after, then I then I actually worked on the math that went into the balloon former <laughs> system. So. And when you say Poe, that was on Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. Kung Fu Panda. So, yeah. That, and, you know, like Poe's belly in Kung Fu Panda is kind of an important. It's almost a character of its own. So, yeah, 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 it really is. So if someone was starting out in the field of computer graphics, interested in doing some of the things that you've done, mm-hmm. but starting today, what would be your advice? Great question. OK, so AI changes everything. So I would suggest even if they didn't want to just do computer graphics, I'm thinking of like other areas. Anyway, AI will be very big and very important. What underpins all AI is math and statistics. And so people kind of tend not to like math and statistics. Embrace it because it is the core of all this AI technology. So study, study. My my advice would be like, so yeah, kind of all the stuff that I've done has been very technical. My advice would be study, 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 study your guts out. You're learning the language by which we communicate, you know, linear algebra, statistics, calculus. All this stuff is is like the basic grammar and language by which we communicate. So so study the snot out of that kind of stuff. But, you know, have some fun too. you know, learn about artists like art on the side, learn how to paint with, uh, you know, you know, uh, real oil pastels kind of a thing. Play around with some of the, you know, Blender is this great open source free a digital content creation package so you can start playing around with that and like making characters and animations and stuff like that so so yeah you get to work with a lot of talented people when you work at a place like dreamworks and so i always kind of loved asking people what gave you your edge what made what, what really kind of helped you get a job here and invariably it was usually always something people did on the side at home something that like so it wasn't just their core academic school experience it was like oh they were trying to make animations at home you know out of lego or something like that or you know oh they actually tried writing a video game on the side at home so so you know do this stuff on your own like start now there's no reason you have to wait until you get to school to do it so Mm, i love that advice that's great mark yeah yeah don't wait just do it so just actually one clarifying question about what you just said so when you say people were doing it at home Mm -hmm. do you mean before they were at DreamWorks or while they were at DreamWorks, they were honing their skills outside of their job. Both. And so I think I was thinking of kind of like even while they were kids, maybe even before they went to high school or or college, like they started learning it at home. Mm. Then during university, usually most people are so busy during college or university, they don't have time for side projects. But then, yeah, actually at DreamWorks, having your own artistic pursuits on the side was very common. We had what we called film club there, and it was basically just anyone who was interested in making like a short film. So we'd get together and talk about short film projects and organize shoots and things like that. They also, interestingly enough, like DreamWorks was smart, they identified this, that people like had their side hustles and loved having kind of like their side hustles. So they organized something called DreamCon, you know, kind of like Comic-Con. And basically it was an evening where everyone got to bring all their side projects that they were working on and try and sell them, you know, either in like books or cards or examples of their work and stuff. And I was just always so blown away by like all the talent that we had there. Mm. So yeah, side projects was a very common thing that a lot of people had. They were working on stuff on their own, on the side, since they were kids in school, even as adults. That's amazing. I mean, it also sounds like DreamWorks is a very supportive employer. And I love a- DreamWorks. They're a fantastic employer. I have no problem saying that. I stayed there for 10 years, 
totally loved it. So, yeah, I was just talking with someone today about how a lot of employers, it never occurs to them that you have ambitions beyond working directly for the Mm. manager that you're currently working for. And I mean, you're a great example, but by investing in your actual interests and ambitions outside of your direct work, it actually made you love the company even more. Even years after leaving, you know, you you have this glowing review. It's true. And like one example, they, they offered an improv class. Uh, Fridays at lunch and you know there are periods like you kind of go through ups and downs in your careers you're like I don't know if I should stay here I've been here for a while but there were times that I found myself going I'm like yeah but I love Friday improv so much I'm like I just so love doing Friday improv and and like yeah it kept honestly it probably kept me there for a couple extra years you know Mm -hmm. having access to all these great development classes that they had so yeah I think that's a sign of a good employer so Definitely. I love that. Okay. Now that we've talked about your path a little bit, we're going to get into our time capsule segment where we can predictions. (laughs) Yeah. Reflect on some things in the past, freeze this moment in time and make some predictions for the future. So we can start with the past. If you could write a letter to yourself 10 years ago, what would you say? Uh, (laughs) Don't take that breakdancing class uh, when you're doing your (laughs) masters because I screwed up my back and it's affected me to this day since. Oh, so, it's funny because I've thought I'm like, there's very few things I would tell myself to like regret. Yeah. To go back in life and don't do that would be one of them. Mm. <laughs> but on the other hand, too, it's like, I mean, come on, you know, live like you only, you know, get to do these things once. Mm. Like, why not do a, a breakdancing class when you're doing your master? So but take care of your back, kids. Would that advice change if you were writing to yourself five years ago? I don't think so. Um, You know, I think, yeah, maybe the only other piece of advice I think I would give myself, honestly, like, you know, I worked hard in university. I would be like, no, study even harder, (laughs) like take more of the extra classes kind of thing. Yeah, just because they honestly, for me, like they're so important, you know, like I wish I'd done like more advanced linear algebra classes and things like that. So Mm, but that would be your advice to yourself five years ago. Oh, 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 I see. You know what? I, I I would say learn more about AI, like keep learning about it. Like, you don't know how big this is going to be. Um, and I mean, I kind of like already was like focusing on L on AI, um, but I would kind of say even focus on it even more. Mm. So, yeah, because like AI has kind of like really blown up and like things I sort of never thought would have been possible are like now possible. Actually, you know what? It would, you know what it would have been? It would have been learn about language models. So I said there's these kind of two areas of AI, like computer vision and language models. I would have said start learning about language models because those are going to be super, super important. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, moving on to the present. What is your favorite song right now? I was just telling you off camera that I love EDM, uh, vocal trance, electronic dance music. Um, I can never remember any of the artists' names. I love listening to Above and Beyond Group Therapy. Um, I think Alyssa Fuedo is a vocalist that I really like. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of her collaborations I I end up really liking. So it's not quite a specific song, but it's a podcast. Perfect. So what is your favorite show right now? Oh, man, I really liked Westworld. I'm really disappointed they are not extending mm. it for another season. I thought it was a very well done film about about AI. Mm. So, yeah, I think Westworld would probably be one of my favorites. What is the best movie you've seen in the last year? Oppenheimer. I really liked Oppenheimer. So and I also said, like, I studied physics in my undergrad. So to see all of the OGs of physics portrayed on the screen was like a real thrill for me. So I really enjoyed seeing Oppenheimer. It didn't bother you that there were very little computer graphics. (laughs) Um, No, it didn't. No. Yeah, man. (laughs) Christopher Nolan is just such an amazing director. And I appreciate that he wants to do things in camera. And I think there's really good reasons for that, actually. So. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed Oppenheimer. What food or drink item are you currently obsessed with? My kryptonite is kettle cooked salt and vinegar potato chips. (laughs) Just like if they are in the cupboards, like they literally go, Mark, Mark, we're so lonely. Please come be with us. And like, I don't think I don't think a bag of salt and vinegar potato chips has lasted for more than 36 hours in my house. Yeah, if it does. That it would be like a miracle of willpower for me. Yeah, I think on episode three of this podcast, Alessandra Conti actually buys for her cheat day brookies and then throws the rest of them away. <laughs> this is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, need, I need to find like, yeah, some kind of time safe, you know, or some way to delay them for at least a two days. Or enjoy yourself, Mark. I could, I could. What is the biggest cultural difference between Canada and the United States? Great question. So at least the part of Canada where I'm from, it, okay, 
I always say there are more cultural differences within the U between different parts of the US than there are between the US and Canada. So like the Midwest, you know, Montana, very similar to central Canada. So mm. so I will say the difference though between Saskatchewan, where I am from, and Los Angeles, um, is that if you strike up conversation with a stranger in Saskatchewan, it's kind of like, oh, this person is doing me a favor. They're being friendly. Whereas I think in Los Angeles, it's kind of like, oh, this person wants something. What do they want? Yeah. Yes. They're kind of like, you're always on guard, you know, with that. And it's not Mm. that people aren't friendly here, but it feels like it's a little bit more of like, they're authentically my neighbor you know kind of friendly interesting yeah. that's so interesting because you always hear from the east coast that people are much friendlier in la so i guess it just gets worse yeah. i'm like man what are the people on the east coast like like they must be really you know stoic or maybe you know if they talk to you it's they're very direct about what they want like get out of my way you know i've heard that too yeah i mean they're all businessmen you know yeah. new york city go 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 yeah what is the most recent lesson that you learned? And this could be professional and personal life, a skill that you picked up. I have been dipping my toe into management, I would say. And mm. so I have had interns lately. The lesson I think I have learned. So if you're just working under someone, you, the tech term we use is IC or individual contributor. And I think I did not have an appreciation for how hard it is to even just pick the projects that people work on and define those projects. There's so much networking and talking with other people you have to do to figure out like, well, what is the area we really need to focus on and how do we, you know, define a well-defined project? So I had no appreciation for how hard that is. Mm. So I have a whole new respect for what managers do. Who would be dream collaborators for you on something creative? And I know, you know, you host a radio show, you have your own interests, you are doing taxidermy. We're sitting in Mark's apartment, which is full of... (laughs) His taxidermy collection. So this could be collaborator on any anything that you're interested in. Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, So academically, I think some of the people that I have for collaborators right now and they would be like co-authors on paper, I think are actually they're great collaborators. I can't think of like maybe better collaborators that I would want to work with. So I feel, you know, kind of very lucky and blessed to be able to work with those people. Um, If I think a little bit out of the box, I've dabbled in doing music videos. It'd be really fun to do another music video, I think. What were you doing on them? I I, I shot a music video. I shot a hip hop music video, I think in 2009. What? A year. Have you not seen this? No. Okay, well, you can look it up online. Uh, It's West, spelt with three E's. If you look up like Weast, Mark J. Matthews on YouTube, it'll come up. It's still it's still on there. So it was like required viewing. Yeah, a hip hip hop music video that I shot for fun. So maybe if I could like collaborate with someone like Joseph Kahn, who's like does all the big glitzy music videos for Britney Spears, that would be like lots of fun. Oh, my gosh. Anyone. Oh, my gosh. All my friends are going to think it's so funny that you said that. That's he's hands down my favorite director. Oh, is he really? Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a huge fan of his latest movies. And yeah. Okay, since since I'm on the podcast, can I share wisdom that he gave me? Have you met him? I've met him. My friend worked at a casting studio that ended up casting a lot of Joseph Kahn's music videos. And so he was at this Christmas party and nobody was talking to him. And I'm like, oh, I should go talk to Joseph Kahn. He's like one of my favorite music video directors. And so I just asked, I said, hey, do you have any advice for an up and coming music video director? And the advice that he gave, I thought was really good. He said, I love watching bad movies and thinking about how I would make them better. I love watching bad movies and thinking about how I would make them better. And and I just thought, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, we're all really good at cutting down bad films. But very few of us actually think about, well, how would I have made this movie better? Like, what if I was director on this and I've got this train wreck of a movie? What's the one thing that would be the most important thing to change in this film? It's a great thing to think about. And I love asking it, like if I'm ever watching a movie with friends, like, hey, if you could change one thing about this film, what would it be? And so I just thought like, hey, that's a great mind shift. And it was one of Joseph Kahn's pieces of advice. So thank you, Joseph Kahn, if you're listening. Have you seen Bodied? No, I have not. His new one, Ick, is coming out, so you can go see that together, Mark. Okay, look forward to it. Okay, normally I ask people, who are your pets? But in your case, I'm going to ask, (laughs) who are the animals mounted on your wall? Yeah, they're the closest I have. Okay, since I'm on video, I've got a bear skin here. Hi, I'm Barry the Bear. So my uncle was a hunter and he had a lot of taxidermy on the walls and that kind of like, I don't know, I guess inspired me as a little kid. And then when I was at DreamWorks, 
everyone loved decorating their office. It's a whole company of artists. And so we went with kind of like man room theme and I got a whole bunch of t- dead animals, taxidermy animals to put on the walls there. And, and so how many people were sharing that office? Uh, just me and another guy. Okay, it was just okay. two of us. So yeah, we put up fake wood paneling and we had plans for like a fake fireplace and everything too. So <laughs> it, yeah, anyway, it was really fun. So uh, I, they came with me after I left DreamWorks and they're on my walls here and they're great conversation pieces. So DreamWorks even let you take all of that with you. Um, they did. They only, they gave us a limited budget, so only like a few of them I bought with like DreamWorks mm. money. But they kind of knew it was like sort of a gift they were ultimately giving to us. So wow, was, another and, point in the DreamWorks. Yeah, yeah. Actually, and even interestingly enough, too, a couple of them got borrowed by some of the guys for like a Crude's party installation. He found creative ways to like turn them into like prehistoric animals. So <laughs> I was very honored that my animals got to do that. Amazing. Okay, so moving on to the future. Five years from now, where do you imagine you will be living? Oh, wow. Good question. I do keep thinking about moving back to Canada. Um, So I think there's a reasonable chance I will be working in Canada or at the very least elsewhere. It kind of feels like, you know, after COVID remote work is sort of a real possibility. I don't think I'll be in LA anymore. So yes, somewhere somewhere a little bit more, maybe rural, a little bit more suburban. So yeah, yeah, yeah. LA, I don't know. Everyone ends up leaving LA. It's sad. Don't say that. Yeah, you'll end up leaving too. Watch out. I already did it and came back. (laughs) (laughs) Five years from now, is there anything you hope will have been invented? Oh, wow. Good question. Uh, you know, actually, yeah. And, and maybe it's actually even realistic. Like I find myself quite often going, man, I wish I had a personal assistant. And some of the AI technology is very powerful and I could potentially see it being almost capable of behaving as an assistant, maybe in five years. What types of things do you need help with, like scheduling? Oh, man, like going through my email. Yeah, scheduling is one of them, you know, going through my email, like calling out you know spam stuff i really need to pay attention to like even finances it'd be great if they could handle you know my personal finances and just menial boring things Mm, paperwork mm. the year is 2028 which animal is on your taxidermy wall (laughs) which new animal okay the one the one that i really want i would love to get a caribou head (laughs) or a buffalo head so just, Canadian just because they are so outrageously large and just impractical. And so nobody ever I, I would have like a ginormous log cabin and I'd have a ginormous buffalo head beside a ginormous caribou head. Mm. Yeah. The year is 2028. What is the title of the latest trolls adventure? Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be trolls interplanetary tour. <laughs> Because they had Trolls and then Trolls World Tour. And so they just got to keep going down that path of interplanetary, intergalactic. I guess, actually, they must they must start working on those movies so far in advance. Oh, yeah. Probably like three, three and a half years, I think, yeah. from like conception to like going on the big screen. Wow. Much, so. Okay, so the year is 2028. If you're not living in L.A., what's going to be your every other day hike equivalent oh that's a good question i love hiking sadly i probably see myself in a flatter part of the country i do oddly enough find myself kind of like drawn to like that nice simpler life cross-country skiing maybe yeah maybe cross-country skiing maybe a river (laughs) valley i do like running um if my knee doesn't give me too much trouble i could see myself doing a lot of running so yeah I, i love getting out for a good hike in nature though so that does make me happy and make me come alive Yeah, definitely. I love that. Well, I'm sure, you know, America is one of those places where there's all sorts of geography not too far away, right? Oh, yeah. Or is that just California? But you'll have somewhere to go for sure. The year is 2028. What is the current title of your AI talk? Oh, wow. Um, Oh, man, that's a great question. It'll be AI. It's not actually conscious. (laughs) That's what it'll be. Because it's so good at fooling people, we will be asking ourselves so many questions about what true consciousness actually is and what you makes us so? human. Yeah, it's I think a regression. so. Kind of what? A regression. Uh, I th- kind of the big questions that the philosophers were thinking. Yeah, about it really is. Ago, but yeah. it, it will cause people to question when they see how good it is. They'll say, wow, I thought only humans could do that kind of thing. Mm. It'll cause us to ask, what is the nature of humanity and what actually makes us special? Mm. 
how many talks do you think you will have given by I that think, point? I think a lot more. A lot of people are really interested in these topics, and I seem to be being asked to talk about, about it more and more. And I, I really enjoy talking about AI. So Yeah, well, I'm glad you could talk about it with me today. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, honored to be here. Mark, well, thank you so much for all of your insight today. Where can people keep up with you online? Um, I have uh, my own website, markjmatthews.com, uh, which has, I think, links to most of my other media. I also have like uh, a, a web handle at HU Missionary. Um, I don't post there too often on Twitter or X now, as it's called. So, but yeah, just go to Mark J. Matthews, Mark with a K, J with a J, Matthews with two T's.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Honored to be on your show. Here is a recap of some takeaways from my conversation with Mark. One, if it's a company you're interested in working for, follow up and make sure that genuine interest has a chance to shine through. Two, listening to what your friends, mentors, and family members reflect back to you about what you've been expressing can help you decide which goals to pursue and which to put on pause. Three, If you're looking to improve your filmmaking skills, don't just critique flaws of other movies. Think about how you could have fixed them. Four, fears about the singularity have not proven historically well-founded when it comes to AI. Relax and find out how AI can be a tool you can leverage for your own benefit and creativity. Five, if you are interested in pursuing a similar career path to Mark, the best thing you can do is highly prioritize your education and study, particularly language models. Six, employers learn from DreamWorks, allowing your employees the freedom to pursue their own projects, the ability to build community at work, and the chance to be creative with their office space, builds a robust, invested, and happy team. And seven, take time to nurture your own creativity and projects. You'll be in good company. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Set Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate it and share it with a friend, especially if you can think of someone who might benefit from the knowledge that was shared here today. You can keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at No Set Path Show or on the website at www.nosetpathshow.com. Thanks so much for being part of this community and we'll talk to you soon.